When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Howdy everybody, CJ here. Welcome to DHP, episode 229. This episode is going to be the first in what will probably be a three-part mini-series with very likely the third and final part being a bonus episode just for supporters of the show via Patreon and Subscribestar. And I'm going to be going over some key concepts and theories that I've seen basically illustrated in real time. These are things that I observe in history when I look back, but I've been observing a lot lately, and I'm talking particularly since the COVID madness began back in March of 2020. So whatever that ends up being, what is that, 21 months, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that we've lived in some very interesting times where, in terms of historical events and insanity and craziness, it seems like things are amped up, and what's the saying? Something like, there are decades where nothing happens, and then there are, whatever it is, months, years, whatever, where decades happen. But first, just a little bit with uh, what's going on with me and how I'm doing and all that. So I'm almost at the end of the current semester, which is fall 2021. Basically, I just have a couple more days worth of frantically grading stuff and entering my grades. And uh, I have a department meeting on Zoom I have to deal with tomorrow and a handful of other kind of bureaucratic things I've got to take care of before I leave for Christmas break. But I'm almost done. I'm seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, and that is a good thing. It's been a difficult year for me, and here I'm talking about the calendar year of 2021, as I'm sure it's probably been for most, if not all of you, for a variety of reasons. Now, there's some good stuff going on, too, but nonetheless, you know, when I look back on it, this was a very trying year for me, to be sure, and my mental health has probably been, on average, at the lowest state it's been in a while, even though there are, you know, good days, good weeks, and good things happening in my life in various ways, including in just a couple of weeks, I'm going to be moving into our new house, which, you know, the move itself is just a giant clusterfuck of stress, as moves always are. But once it's done, I'll be in a better place, literally and figuratively. So that's a very positive thing, as is the end of the semester, as is the end of this damn year, just in general. And I do just want to say that uh, to anybody who has sent me say over the past, I don't know, six, seven months at least, any messages via social media, emails, that sort of thing. And if you never heard back from me, please don't take it personally. I apologize. I, in past years, had been better. Not that it's been a while since I've been able to answer all the different inquiries and messages and emails I get. You know, once your podcast gets to a certain size, which, you know, mine isn't huge, but it's like a mid-sized podcast, I would say, in the, the grand scheme of history podcasts, once you get to a certain level, you just flat out can't answer everybody. You know, in the early days when just a few hundred people are listening, it's very easy to respond to literally every email and social media message that you get. But, you know, once you get a few thousand or where I'm at, where I'm, you know, depending on the episode and whatever I'm running about. I think seven to 8,000 regular listeners for most episodes and occasionally get more than that for, you know, particularly popular things. 
But, you know, once you get to that level, there's just no way unless you're willing and able to like hire multiple assistant assistants that you'd actually be able to continue to answer everybody. But in general, this year has been so trying, both in terms of my time and, you know, things related to work being very abnormal, especially last spring and to a lesser extent this fall semester that I'm almost done with now, where it has put additional demands on my time and energy in terms of my day job just to get things done and do my job. And then at the same time, you know, I've been dealing with uh, mental health issues off and on throughout the last, you know, 21 months or whatever. And it ebbs and flows, but for sure, kind of my average daily mental health uh, meter reading has been lower over the past 21 months than it has been uh, in a while. Now, I've had previous bouts of depression and things before, but um, as any of you who know anything about depression know, one of the things it does is it really takes a toll on your energy levels. And so one of the things I've had to really kind of let slide to a large extent is responding to emails and social media messages and whatever. So, you know, please don't take it personally if you've sent me messages and never heard back from me. It's nothing against you. I've been having to just let it slide so that I can continue to go to work and do my job, meet my family obligations, and still occasionally put out a DHP episode. So anyway, way back in 2016... I did a mini-series that I called 21 Key Concepts and Theories, and I organized this into three parts, with each part covering seven concepts and or theories that have kind of influenced how I see both the present and when I look back at the past, you know, into history. And they got a fair amount of play considering, you know, where my podcast was at in terms of audience at the time. I think to a lot of people who've been listening to the show from, you know, very early on, or people who maybe joined later but have been very, you know, diligent in going back through the back catalog, I think this miniseries has a bit of a cult following. So this would have been Dangerous History Podcast episodes 109 and 110, as well as Dangerous History Podcast bonus episode 7, because I made the last episode just for supporters of the show. And then early on in 2021, I started to think about doing another Concepts and Theories miniseries, which, you know, in terms of content might have some overlap with that earlier series, but which I would try for the most part to talk about different concepts and theories, even though some of them are very much related to ones I did cover in that earlier miniseries in 2016. But this miniseries, I wanted to make it on concepts and theories, many of which, if not all of which, you know, have affected how I view history, but which have been on display in some prominent way or ways ever since the beginning of COVID madness and everything that went along with it, too. You know, the lockdowns, the reaction to the lockdowns, all of the, you know, George Floyd, BLM, the riots, all of this craziness, the political madness, you know, having to do with the 2020 election and its aftermath, like all these related things where everybody seems to be simultaneously losing their minds to some extent. And to pick out some concepts and theories from various realms, you know, whether it's political science, psychology, a number of other things that I think are illustrated to some significant extent by the events of the last, you know, year and change. And so I started working on that in kind of the spring of 2021. But then I put it on indefinite hold. I did record two segments 
And it'll actually be the first two concepts and theories of this episode. I recorded those back in like May or June. But then I kind of lost momentum and kind of mentally got derailed from continuing on this series for the time being. So, you know, I saved those two segments and just kind of put it aside for the time being and then recently returned to it. And, you know, part of the the issue was just simply figuring out which concepts and theories I wanted to cover. So the intent, I'm calling this series The Dirty Baker's Dozen. If you don't know, a Baker's Dozen is 13. So I'm going to be covering 13 concepts and theories that I think have been prominently illustrated by recent events. And my plan, at least as of this recording for organization, is to have episode one cover four, episode two cover the next four, and then the remaining five to make it a baker's dozen. I'm probably going to do as a third installment, but as a bonus episode just for supporters of the show. So anyway, this first installment, the concepts and theories I'm going to be speaking about are going to be first, crisis and leviathan. Second, tacit collusion or signaling. Third, libido dominante. And fourth, doublethink. Now, I will tell you, the first two segments that I'm going to cover in this episode, the segment on Crisis and Leviathan, and the segment on tacit collusion or signaling, these two segments I recorded five or six months ago. So, keep that in mind if... You know, I make a reference in there where it sounds like I'm talking as if, you know, the COVID stuff has only been going on for a little over a year or whatever. That's why. That's why. And the last two segments I recorded, you know, within a matter of days of recording this intro. So those are much more recent. Also, the first two segments, I might, you know, miss an obvious example of those concepts and theories being illustrated in, say, the last five or six months. And well, the reason why is because those first two segments, those first two concepts and theories, I did record back, like I said, May or June of this year. So, you know, just keep that in mind. But anyway, I hope that you enjoy this. And I've got some other things in the works trying to get done for this month. Probably the the second installment in this miniseries, I won't get done this month, but we'll see. But anyway, I hope you enjoy The Dirty Baker's Dozen, Part 1. You never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that, it's an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before. So in case you don't recognize that audio clip that you just heard, now it's from over a decade ago, that was Rahm Emanuel, who at the time of that interview was President-elect Obama's pick to be chief of staff, and who of course would go on to become his chief of staff. Speaking in the context of a Wall Street Journal interview in late 2008, so after Obama had been elected, but before he was sworn in. So in terms of context, this is when the stock market and the economy were still pretty much in free fall and everything was seemingly melting down as far as that goes. But of course, to a power-loving status like Emmanuel, Someone like that is not going to see things like that economic meltdown the way most normal people would. 
In other words, as a tragedy that was ultimately caused by the state and was regrettable more than anything else. Instead, people like Emmanuel see things like the economic crash of 0809 more than anything else as an opportunity, as he said, to do things that you normally could not do. And that's how power-hungry, opportunistic, psychopathic statists see everything from wars to terrorist attacks to economic crashes to natural disasters to, of course, pandemics. Not as all of us decent, regular people with some amount of humanity and empathy would see these things as terrible tragedies and disasters to be avoided, if at all possible. No, the psychopaths who make up the bulk of the political class see all of these sorts of things as golden opportunities for them to do the shit they already want to do, to deploy their answer to every question and their solution to every problem, real or imagined, which is, of course, to juice up the size and power of the state. Or as someone from very much the opposite ideological side of the issue from Emmanuel would put it, namely H.L. Mencken, quote, the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by an endless series of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary, end quote. Now, I would add a little bit of nuance to Mencken's statement and say that some of the hobgoblins are purely imaginary, and some of them are actually real, but many of them are in between, meaning they are real or at least potentially realistic problems or threats, but that the media and the political classes will wildly exaggerate the danger of some of these hobgoblins. So, of course, you can see this in regard to COVID, which is, of course, a real threat, particularly to certain types of people. But just how grave a threat it is to most people has clearly been wildly and deliberately exaggerated over the past year plus. And honestly, we could say the same thing with a lot of things like terrorism or mass shootings, to name just two more hobgoblins that the media has hyped up in recent years. Yes, these things can and do happen, and yes, they are potential dangers. But statistically, terrorism and mass shootings though they're very, very dramatic and they very much will grab everybody's attention. In cold statistical terms, these are far, far less likely to happen to you than hundreds, if not thousands, of much more mundane dangers that A, most people simply are not hysterically afraid of, and B, most people wouldn't be willing to consider surrendering their liberties in order to be protected from them. So, you know, driving comes to mind. Statistically speaking, if you regularly travel on high-traffic highways in particular, that is much more likely to result in you being injured or killed than terrorists or mass shooters. But, at least as of right now, very few people are calling for the banning of cars or something similarly draconian. So I'm going to stop bearing the lead with this intro here, and as my more seasoned listeners may already be guessing, our first concept and theory to be on front and center display over the past year plus is the idea summed up by the phrase crisis and leviathan, which, of course, if you don't know, comes from a very important 20th century U.S. history book written by Robert Higgs.
Crisis in Leviathan was first published in the late 1980s by, of all things, Oxford University Press. And for as anti-establishment of a book as this book is, for it to have been published by a major academic publisher tells you that the book was very well done and very solid. Because while you may often be able to get a less than solid book published by such places as long as they're simply reiterating establishment ideas, if you want to have even a prayer of getting a book that is as anti-establishment as Crisis and Leviathan is, published by a major publisher, let alone an academic one, you've got to really cross all your T's and dot all your lowercase j's. The book was republished last decade as a 25th anniversary version, this time published by the Independent Institute, where Robert Higgs worked before he retired to Mexico a few years ago. The historical question that Higgs is trying to address in this book is how exactly the U.S. federal government transformed and metastasized over the course of the 20th century from being, at the start of the century, arguably one of the most, if not the most, limited national states in modern world history, and to go from that to being, by the latter years of the 20th century, the U.S. federal government had become the largest and most powerful state that has ever existed in the history of mankind. And of course, it's only continued to grow in size and power exponentially so far over the first couple decades of the 21st century. So in trying to explain how this drastic change came about, Higgs argues that the U.S. government, for the most part, did not grow and transform in kind of a slow and steady continuous rate. Rather, he says, the U.S. government tended to grow in size and power in fits and starts during particular periods which correspond with crises. These crises primarily came in the form of wars, but also to a lesser extent some other crises, most notably the Great Depression. Now, the precondition for a crisis to cause a massive growth in size and power of the Leviathan that is the U.S. government was ideological. Higgs points out that the U.S. fought wars in the 19th century, which did result in some growth in size and power of the federal government. But compared to what happened in the 20th century, back in the 19th century, the growth of Leviathan during wars tended to be much less pronounced than in the 20th century and tended to be much shorter lived, meaning there was more of a sense in the 19th century that wartime was supposed to be the exception sort of like an aberration that came along every now and then, and that, yeah, you might build up state power to fight a war, but once the conflict ended, things were rolled back pretty quickly and pretty dramatically. Also, unlike in the 20th and 21st centuries, back in the 19th century, economic crises and depressions tended not to lead to major growth spurts for Leviathan in terms of size and power. If I remember right, I think in the book, Higgs contrasted what happened during the 1890s economic depression, which was pretty bad and was the worst one in U.S. history prior to the Great Depression of the 1930s. But because presidents like Grover Cleveland and William McKinley of that era and most of the key players in Congress at the time didn't believe that big government was the best way to handle economic problems, there was nothing like a new deal in the 1890s depression. 
But then as you get into the early years of the 20th century, progressivism as an ideology really takes hold amongst much of America's elites at the time. And by elites, I mean not only political elites, though of course them, but also intellectual elites and much, though not all, of the corporate elite. So by the early years of the 20th century, you've got a generation of leaders who really believe that growing the size and power of the central state by definition is progress, and that growing the size and power of the state is also, practically speaking, the best way to solve any significant social or economic problems. And it's always an intrinsically good thing that, you know, once you've got a new generation rising and much of the elites of the major parties are people who have really internalized this worldview, then that means that any time a crisis comes along, whether it's real, imagined, or kind of real but drastically exaggerated, any time something like that comes down the pike, those who believe most strongly in the benefits and benevolence of state power are going to use that crisis opportunistically as cover and as justification to get a bunch of authoritarian status measures passed, many of which they probably have been thinking about and pushing for for years, but that they couldn't get passed during periods of quote-unquote normalcy. So often, many of the things done to grow Leviathan during a crisis period are A, things that progressive status had already been wanting to do for a long time, but couldn't without the atmosphere of crisis and hysteria and emergency. And B, these are things that often have little or nothing to do with actually fixing or managing the specific problem at hand. It's just simply a golden opportunity for power-hungry progressives to try to grab as much as they possibly can of their wish list before the atmosphere of crisis and hysteria begins to fade. And of course, those sorts of politicians and their accomplices in the media will work mightily to try to stoke the fires of hysteria in order to make the crisis seem as terrible as it possibly can seem and in order to try to stoke it and milk it for as long as they can in order to give them the largest window possible to ram through as much of their wish list as they can. So that's the idea of crisis and Leviathan, that emergencies, mainly war but occasionally other things, are exploited opportunistically by the elites in order to drastically grow the size and power of the state. Higgs also talks about something that he calls the ratchet effect, which we might consider sort of a bonus concept that, in my mind, falls under the larger umbrella concept of Crisis and Leviathan. But basically, the idea of the ratchet effect is that during a crisis, once the ideological preconditions are in place of a group of elites who mostly believe in state power as the solution to every problem. When a crisis occurs, the state is going to grow significantly in size and power, but then when the crisis is over, there will be some significant retrenchment. Sometimes really significant, sometimes enough scaling back of Leviathan that if you're looking at it on a chart, it seems pretty dramatic but that inevitably the quote-unquote new normal after each crisis ends up being a larger and more powerful leviathan than was the case in the old normal. So it's like two steps forward in terms of growing state power during the emergency, but then once the emergency's over, only maybe one step or at most one and a half steps back. So 
This means that whenever the next crisis comes along, Leviathan is starting from a higher starting point in terms of size and power than it was starting from at the beginning of the previous crisis. And secondly, the ratchet effect means that even if there are sometimes some pretty significant retrenchments that take place after a crisis, like for example, in the two or three years immediately following the end of World War II, there was significant cutting back in the size and power of the U.S. government. But even in cases like that, where the retrenchment is pretty significant, the long-term trend over multiple decades and multiple crises is always going to tend upward, despite occasional periodic cutbacks. Now, speaking of charts, in the show notes for this episode, I'll try to remember to link to a very interesting chart that shows U.S. government spending as a percentage of the nation's GDP from 1800 to 2010 so that you can visually see what I'm talking about. Now, measuring government spending as a percentage of national GDP is a pretty good yardstick. It's not perfect, but it's a pretty good yardstick for roughly figuring out the approximate size and power of the government relative to the nation at a given time. Now, if you want to pause this for a moment to pull up that chart so that you're looking at it while I'm talking for the next few minutes, I'll point out a few things about that chart if you have it up. First off, notice how all of the biggest spikes on that chart coincide with major wars. Also, looking at the chart, notice the ratchet effect, which was there for sure, but much less dramatic in the 19th century, but which becomes much more visible and pronounced over the course of the 20th century. You can see how when there's a dramatic spike in government size and power, such as, for example, during World War I or World War II, There is significant cutting back in the aftermath of the war, but the new normal is a bigger, more powerful government than it was prior to that particular war. Also, by the way, looking at that chart, notice that the New Deal in the 1930s is definitely the most dramatic uptick in government size and power on this chart during peacetime. But notice that it is absolutely dwarfed by, first off, both of the world wars, but also overall by the Cold War. So as a side note, if you're someone who's generally against big government, you probably should be against the New Deal. But you really should be even more, more in opposition and even more skeptical of wars than of things like the New Deal. Because World War I, World War II, the Cold War, all of these things did way more to grow the power and size of the U.S. government than the New Deal ever could have. So, kind of pro-war mainstream conservatives, I'm looking at you, right? Lots of you kind of mainstream conservatives will rail against the oppressive big governmentism of the New Deal, but then you'll be rah-rah-rah for every war that comes along, and you'll look back nostalgically at World War II mobilization and stuff like that. Where, again, if your main reason for being against the New Deal is, oh, it's bad big government and it's, you know, creating too much size and power to the federal government and ballooning its fiscal power and responsibilities and all that, it's like, well, okay, yeah, fair enough. But then I assume that you're like five times as against World War II as you are against the New Deal? Well, surely you would have to be in order for your ideology to be at all remotely internally consistent. Also looking at the chart, notice how the Cold War is a bit different from the other crises, because instead of it being a short-term but very intense crisis, like, for example, a major war that's compressed into just four or five years, 
the Cold War was this lower intensity but chronic state of semi-emergency, punctuated with the occasional hot proxy war that dragged on for over four decades. So, if anything, I'd say that the Cold War did even more than the two world wars did to kind of solidify the new normal of the United States from the mid-20th century onward as a garrison state world empire. It would be interesting to see how this chart would play out in terms of data for the 11 years since 2010. And in particular, I'll be very interested when we get charts like this that encompass, you know, current years to see what the COVID spike in Leviathan looks like visually relative to the other spikes on the chart for the World Wars and the New Deal and the Cold War and all that, and the War on Terror for that matter. I'm pretty sure that in overall proportion, the COVID spike in the size and power of the government is going to look much bigger and more dramatic than the New Deal does. And I think it probably won't outdo World War II, but it may outdo World War I in terms of a pretty sudden, dramatic spike in the size and power of the government. And one last thing I'll mention about the chart, and I might have already mentioned this briefly, but I'll just say it again if I did, is the ratchet effect. You can see that after each crisis that ends, if it's a crisis that does in fact end, there is some cutback, there is some retrenchment, but usually Leviathan does not shrink down to what it was prior to the most recent crisis. And furthermore, there's what you might call an ideological ratchet effect. It's intangible, but I think it's real. This idea that extraordinary, precedent-breaking extensions of state power in one crisis are almost always going to be then cited as kind of justifications and precedents for more of that kind of stuff when the next crisis comes along. And one specific case that I'm pretty familiar with is the relationship of World War I to the New Deal. A lot of the individuals involved in kind of running the New Deal in the 30s were individuals who had been personally involved in running war mobilization back during World War I. That's no coincidence. And a lot of the programs of the New Deal were basically World War I programs, but now given a peacetime veneer. You know, given new names. So, for example, in World War I, you had the War Industries Board, and in the New Deal, you had the National Recovery Administration. And these were very, very similar agencies. Just one was allegedly fighting the Central Powers, and the other was allegedly fighting economic depression. But a lot of the overall ideas and individuals and so on were the same. And many of the individuals involved in running the New Deal programs explicitly referred back to World War I as precedent. So I think the ideological ratchet effect is a real thing. And we might imagine if there is, in 10 or 20 years, a pandemic that's even worse than COVID, or that is at least perceived as such, whoever's in charge is likely to refer back to the COVID power-grabbing situation as precedent and justification, and everything that happened during the COVID lockdowns is going to be repeated plus a bunch more. So the ideological ratchet effect leads to a more pronounced real ratchet effect. So where the concept of crisis and Leviathan was on display over the past year and a bit should be pretty obvious, I would imagine. It can be seen front and center in terms of governments, both in the U.S. as well as throughout much of the rest of the world, grabbing new and completely unprecedented powers and growing dramatically in size and expense and power and all that 
during the COVID crisis. Growth that is completely unprecedented other than maybe during the two world wars of the 20th century as far as very sudden dramatic growth in size and power of the state relative to the overall size of the nation and the private economy. And the crisis and Leviathan dynamic of COVID was not at all hard to predict. It is not much more complicated than predicting that water is going to flow downhill. But even so, I will point out that I was saying over a year ago, in the very early stages of the COVID crisis, that this crisis was going to lead to a very powerful crisis in Leviathan dynamic. I think that it's likely that over the next five to ten years, a lot of this stuff that's been happening over the past year and change is going to be rolled back. But not all of it is, and some of it's only going to be rolled back slightly, and it's going to be waiting there dormant for the next emergency to come along. And I think you could put your money on the bet that the quote-unquote new normal is going to still be a bigger and more powerful leviathan than the old normal was. That even if a lot of the COVID stuff is ratcheted back, the state's going to be bigger and more powerful than it was, say, in 2018, 2019. And I'll point out, even though probably most, if not all of you know this, the quote-unquote old normal, right, of the U.S. government, say, in 2018-2019, was already a situation in which the U.S. federal government was the largest, most powerful, and most expensive, and most indebted government in the history of the human species. And nothing to me seems likely to derail this dynamic from playing out again and again and again over coming years and decades, other than one, potentially, the coming to power of a generation of political leaders who have the ideology of a Ron Paul or even just a Grover Cleveland or Calvin Coolidge, which I admit is something so unlikely to happen that it might as well be impossible for kind of practical consideration purposes. And then the only other possible thing that could lead to an interruption of the crisis in Leviathan dynamic just continuing to repeat itself and play itself out in coming years would be the collapse of the overall system in some fashion. Which to me seems much more likely to actually happen than the coming to power of a whole bunch of leaders who are, you know, Ron Paul and Grover Cleveland and Calvin Coolidge. But of course, the collapse of the system is one that, you know, even though we might consider it an evil and corrupt system that deserves to die, nonetheless, the process of the system collapsing is fraught with all sorts of potential dangers, such as the collateral damage to civilization caused by the collapse of the system, and then the very iffy question as to whatever system or systems is going to replace the existing one, and will they be even worse, potentially? And they could be. So I would advise, strap in, stay tuned, and keep your powder dry, and munch that popcorn. So that's our first concept or theory that has been illustrated in practice over the past year and change. Crisis in Leviathan, it's probably one of the most obvious ones, but nonetheless, it's important enough that it deserves to be mentioned. Sometimes the stuff that should go without saying needs to be said.
Okay, so the next concept or theory I want to talk about is something that's known as tacit collusion and also sometimes called signaling. Now, these two terms are synonymous or at least nearly synonymous as concepts, and they are primarily found in various types of economics, particularly in regard to certain types of game theory as well as antitrust law. Now, here's Wikipedia's definition of tacit collusion, which is derived from several footnoted sources, so it's, you know, one of the Wikipedia blurbs that's relatively solid, I think. Quote, Tacit collusion is a collusion between competitors which do not explicitly exchange information and achieving an agreement about coordination of conduct. There are two types of tacit collusion, concerted action and conscious parallelism. In a concerted action, also known as concerted activity, competitors exchange some information without reaching any explicit agreement, while conscious parallelism implies no communication. In both types of tacit collusion, competitors agree to play a certain strategy without explicitly saying so. End quote. And in the blurb, without explicitly saying so, was in italics. Emphasized because it's really a key part of the concept. And in economics, this concept explains why, sometimes anyway, prices can get jacked up for something, you know, some particular product, by most or all of the major firms in a given industry, basically nearly simultaneously, even in cases where there's no obvious supply or demand reason for the price to suddenly go up. So this idea of tacit collusion or signaling explains to me at least not only how large firms, particularly in a fairly kind of oligopolistic industry in which there are either very few firms in that industry or at least very few major firms in that industry, how firms in that situation can coordinate price moves, particularly in regard to price changes, without ever explicitly conspiring or coordinating with each other. So if, say, the biggest firm in an industry, in which there are relatively few major competitors, suddenly jacks up their price for a major product, but without any obvious reason in terms of supply and demand for doing so, this price hike you know, you would assume that all the other firms are going to keep their prices low and try to attract all the business away from the firm that is jacking their prices up. And sometimes that may very well happen. But in a sort of game theory way where competing firms don't always really compete and are often trying to find ways around competition, it also sometimes happens that when a major firm jacks their price up suddenly, their competitors will match it. It just sort of depends on the particular circumstances and the particular thinking of the people running the firms. So whether or not other firms match a firm that jacks their prices up really comes down to the people running the competing firms making the judgment call as to whether or not it is on balance in the interest of their firm to parallel the price hike of the other firm versus the potential advantages of not hiking prices, and thereby potentially attracting a much larger market share by offering the same product much cheaper. But tacit collusion, to me, doesn't just explain implicit collusion between supposedly competitive firms in the business realm. If anything, it has even more explanatory power in explaining the way, I think, 
that different politicians, deep state operatives, and media personalities and media outlets can coordinate their narratives and or policies without the need for there being any explicit conspiring to coordinate. Because, of course, any explicit conspiring always runs the risk of being exposed. Now, when we're looking at politicians, deep state operatives, and media outlets and personalities, these entities are not exactly supposed to be competitors, quote-unquote, in every sense of the word or in every situation, but they are, in theory at least, supposed to be separate, distinct, independent institutions and or individuals who, in theory again, can, and at least some of the time should, check and balance each other. So, they may not exactly be competitors all the time, but in theory, some of them should be competitors, or at least something similar to a competitor, at least some of the time. Right, the idea in kind of civics class 101 is that the different parts of the government are supposed to check and balance each other, and also that the media is supposed to check and balance the government. Now, of course, in practice, that's not how it works at all, but that's at least the theory that you're told is how it is supposed to work, and you're kind of led to believe that that's how it works at least most of the time. And when it doesn't work that way, when there's not real checking and balancing going on, that's the aberration. Now, of course, the reality is quite the opposite. That the aberration is when there is real checking and balancing going on among these institutions and individuals. Because the truth is, and this is not a new thing, although it's becoming much more obvious and blatant and extreme in recent years, the truth is that most of the time, these sorts of institutions and individuals are actually coordinating with each other. They're saying the same shit in the same way at the same time, all the time. But there's no evidence of there being like explicit marching orders coming down from on high in most cases. So instead, how do all the different people and institutions and companies and whatever in the media, in the government, and so forth, how do they all stay in such lockstep on the narrative on important events and issues all the time? Even though there's no reason to believe, and I really doubt, that they're constantly sending out explicit instructions. Like, I don't think there's a conspiracy in the kind of conventional sense of, like, everybody gets down at a table and they all agree, like, all right, today we're going to run with this particular narrative about COVID, and we're going to run with this particular narrative about Russia, and we're going to run with this particular narrative about this thing. Like, I don't think they're actually giving out explicit orders. At least not most of the time. Instead, what's going on is tacit collusion or signaling. And this use of tacit collusion is one reason why it is so hard to prove blatant, deliberate conspiracies in the realm of high-level politics. Because the frequent use of tacit collusion as a tactic means that there's very rarely, if ever, going to be some sort of a smoking gun piece of evidence in which someone who's very powerful is explicitly telling someone else in the government or the media what to do or what to say about an important issue. And to me, all this brings to mind a video from a long time ago in which Noam Chomsky was talking to some New York Times guy, I think a guy pretty high up, I think like an editor or something. And the New York Times guy is basically defending himself against Chomsky's charges that he's essentially a propagandist for the U.S. government and corporate interests. And the New York Times guy's argument 
against Chomsky on this is he says there's no conspiracy to control the news narrative. He says that no one has ever told him the New York Times guy, what to cover and what not to cover and how exactly to cover the things that he will be covering. No one's ever telling him what to do, he says. To which Chomsky replies by saying that politicians and heads of corporations don't need to give the corporate press their marching orders because the educational and career path by which one becomes, say, an editor at a paper like the New York Times ensures that you're selected and groomed to already see the world and cover the news the way the establishment would want you to. And that the educational and career path that gets you to the New York Times is one in which anybody who dissents significantly from the establishment's worldview and narratives is going to be weeded out. They're not going to make it to some high-level job at the New York Times or the Washington Post. So, in other words, by the time one gets to a job at a major media outlet, one has internalized the establishment's worldview to the point that one no doubt genuinely believes in it. And so you certainly don't see yourself as a propagandist for power because you've genuinely internalized the way that the powerful want you to portray the news. But, of course, Chomsky is correct that from a functional perspective, a propagandist for power is exactly what, you know, a reporter or an editor or whatever at a major corporate media outlet is. And I think Chomsky, as usual, when he's analyzing the media and propaganda in the U.S., is dead on accurate. Particularly when it comes to big picture aspects like overall worldview and ideology. But that said, I think that this idea of tacit collusion or signaling explains the how a little bit more in terms of the way that these different news media outlets and politicians and government people can keep themselves in lockstep collusion on particular specific issues and events and policy questions that arise over time. So if you can just get a handful of powerful individuals and institutions to put out a particular narrative, everyone else in the political and media realms who's to any degree an establishment figure or who wants to be one is going to, like a parrot, pick up and repeat that particular take on that particular event or issue. And sometimes they're all going to be repeating not only the same overall narrative and idea, they're going to be saying it in the exact same words even, which can be pretty creepy and culty looking to an outsider who's observing and not drinking the Kool-Aid. Now, where you saw this on display, I think, the most clearly is in the way that the corporate press and the blue state governors and particularly Democratic Party national politicians were pushing a coordinated narrative about COVID and the lockdowns and everything related to that in order to ensure that Trump would not be reelected. By the way, for anyone who's listening who might be a new listener to this podcast, I will point out that I very much have no love for Trump. I see him mostly as a charlatan and a huckster, and ultimately as a sad failure who was too lazy to do his homework and really understand what he was up against. And also someone who was too cowardly to actually follow through on some of the things that he said that sounded good, like ending the wars. So I've got no love for Trump. But that said, I think it's just basically a fact that 
should be obvious to anyone who's not in the anti-Trump cult. And yes, by the way, I think both the hardcore pro-Trump people and the hardcore anti-Trump people are just rival cults. Anyway, it should be obvious to anyone who's not in the anti-Trump cult that most of the corporate press, with only the partial exception of Fox News, as well as virtually all of the deep state, by which I mean the Pentagon, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, and so forth, especially at the higher levels in these institutions, as well as virtually all of the entertainment media, were completely deranged in their desire to destroy Trump and his presidency. They tried to do it with Russiagate, but that was built on such flimsy bullshit that even with all these institutions behind the effort, they weren't able to use Russiagate to get him out. Now, prior to COVID and the lockdowns and everything that flowed from them, I think that Trump had, while not overwhelming odds, probably better than 50% odds of re-election. He had survived a failed impeachment attempt, which often tends to lead to a strengthened president. And the economy, at least by the superficial statistics like the stock market and the official unemployment numbers, appeared to be doing well at the start of 2020. Now, of course, I and anyone else who understands and believes in Austrian economics would argue that a lot of those particular numbers are bullshit and can't be trusted and certainly don't amount to the overall health of the economy. And I would argue that the seeming boom of Trump's presidency pre-COVID was to a large extent yet another bullshit bubble built on artificially low interest rates that sooner or later would have burst even without COVID. But the point is that to the mainstream media and intellectuals, and much of the general public for that matter, things like the stock market and official unemployment figures and so on are the economy. So the perception anyway was that the economy was doing great prior to COVID. If you look at the reaction of the establishment, by which I essentially mean the corporate press, the Democratic Party, the anti-Trump Republicans, and the public faces of the deep state, you know, high up FBI and CIA people and whatever. If you look at their reaction to the early news about COVID at the very end of 2019 and the first month or two of 2020, the establishment at that point was largely downplaying the threat of COVID. You may recall, for example, that in January 2020, Trump banned travel to the U.S. from China. And at that point, the establishment was largely bashing him for racism and xenophobia. And you may also remember that as late as February 24th of 2020, just a couple weeks before most places started locking down, around the time of Chinese New Year, I believe, Nancy Pelosi herself was urging people to ignore COVID and to go party in San Francisco's Chinatown in opposition to Trump's supposed anti-Chinese racism. And yet, within just a couple of weeks of that time, Pelosi and all the rest of the establishment did a massive, hardcore, aggressive 180, turning on a dime from accusing Trump of seizing upon exaggerated fears of COVID in order to justify measures that were really just reflective of his anti-Chinese bigotry. They went from that on a dime to aggressively criticizing and attacking Trump from the other side, i.e. attacking and criticizing him for not implementing a draconian enough lockdown at the federal level. 
And of course, one gets the impression that no matter what Trump had done in the face of COVID in early 2020, the establishment was going to attack it and say it's horrible. So I'm sure that if Trump actually had instituted hardcore federal lockdowns to COVID early on, the establishment would have attacked him just as zealously for doing that, and they would have portrayed him as a tyrant, grabbing power and shredding the Bill of Rights. So what explains the timing and the quickness and the coordination of this 180 on COVID on the part of the establishment from late February to mid-March? And of particular interest here, how exactly did they coordinate the message in terms of its content and timing? Well, tacit collusion, or signaling, is the answer. And I think it's no coincidence that during the period when the establishment was trying to play down the threat of COVID, the first impeachment trial of Trump was still going on. It's hard to remember, given all the crazier shit that came along over the rest of 2020, but the early weeks of the year were largely consumed with the first impeachment trial of Trump. And it didn't conclude and Trump wasn't acquitted until February of 2020. So the establishment had tried to remove Trump by essentially accusing him of being a Manchurian candidate under the control of Putin. Now, of course, there wasn't shit there as far as actual evidence to back that up. And the only people who really believed that story were just mindless, hardcore Democratic partisan hacks. You know, the sorts of people who unquestioningly believe everything that comes out of Rachel Maddow's mouth, for example. So the establishment couldn't pull off an impeachment conviction, and by the time the impeachment trial ended, it was the final year of Trump's first term, so he's looking at getting reelected. And like I said, I think before COVID and everything happened, he probably had better than 50% odds of getting reelected. So at that point, when impeachment failed, strategy quickly shifted to preventing Trump's re-election. You couldn't remove him through impeachment, so the priority is prevent him from getting re-elected at all costs. And right as this shift in strategy was happening from impeachment to sabotaging his re-election, it just so happened that COVID was by that point rapidly spreading around the world. And so somewhere, I think the decision was definitely made that COVID and everything that goes along with it and lockdowns and the effects on the economy and the effects on people's psychology and all these things were going to be the blunt instrument used by the establishment to prevent Trump from being reelected. The establishment and, crucially, Democratic state governors, especially in economically and or politically important states like New York and California and Michigan, as well as the mayors of many major blue cities like New York, Chicago, and L.A. come most readily to mind here, all of them coordinated both statements and policy in a way that would maximize the psychological, economic, and social misery of the American people. And because these states and cities, as well as some others that I didn't mention here, are some of the biggest and most economically important in the country, having those mayors and governors locked down hard and basically strangle their economies was going to cause the entire national economy to suffer, even in places that didn't lock down as hard or as long. And so if you could get California, New York, Michigan, a handful of other states to just lock down crazy hard, as well as most of the country's biggest cities to do the same, 
that wrecks the economy. And that greatly decreases Trump's likelihood of getting reelected. I mean, just California and New York alone are easily the two most economically important states in the country. And those two states locked down the hardest and stayed locked down the longest of basically any major state. And honestly, even if only those two states had done lockdowns like that, it still would have severely harmed the national economy. But of course, those were not the only states that locked down. Crazy. By the way, tacit collusion or signaling can also be seen in the way that various individuals and institutions coordinate their narratives on other important things that really reared up big in 2020. Like wokeism, BLM, the riots, and the narrative about the supposedly massive and powerful threat of white supremacy and white nationalism in America, the way they coordinated their narrative about Antifa versus the Proud Boys, and on and on and on, all that stuff. How do they coordinate the narrative in such lockstep way? In most instances, I'm sure there are cases where people are told from on high, hey, ignore this story, right, or only cover this story this way. Oh, another place you can see tacit collusion and signaling going on is in regard to the squelching of negative stories about Biden and his son in the run-up to the election. But anyway, while there might occasionally be explicit orders given, like, hey, don't cover this story, or hey, cover this story in this particular way, In most instances, I really don't believe that that's going on. I really don't believe that most of the time there's like explicit agreement and coordination. I don't think most of the time there are top-down orders to tell people what narrative to espouse. Instead, it's coordinated through signaling, through tacit collusion. Now, this still is very much, in a way, a conspiracy to control the narrative. But it's a lot harder to prove, quote-unquote, a conspiracy that's mostly or entirely executed through tacit collusion. Because the evidence is circumstantial at best. So anyway, tacit collusion or signaling, how the media and the government and so forth coordinate their narrative in lockstep on a continuous basis. Very much on display over the past year plus. Okay, so the third concept in theory, and or I guess theory, that I want to cover in this episode, number three, is libido dominante, which, if you don't know, is a Latin term that originated in St. Augustine of Hippo's giant book, The City of God, which was written all the way back in the 5th century AD, when the Roman Empire was, of course, in serious decline and closing in on collapse. The translation of libido dominante into English is something like the lust for power or the lust to dominate. And Augustine really does mean lust in a sexual sense. I think it's also useful to add in the idea of compulsion, too, that to at least some degree for everybody, And to certain people, those most likely to seek political power, especially to a huge degree, the desire for ever-increasing power over others, even and perhaps especially if it's totally arbitrary, is essentially more than just a normal addiction. 
Now, by normal addiction, I mean something that's first and foremost a coping mechanism, or at least that started off as a coping mechanism. Most of the things we think of people being addicted to, that's really what it is. Now, maybe over time, an addiction becomes more than a coping mechanism, but oftentimes it doesn't. And most of the time, it originates, at the very least, as a coping mechanism, as a way of self-medicating. But with libido dominante and the addiction to power, I don't think it starts as a coping mechanism. I think it originates and continues as a sexual or at the very least quasi-sexual compulsion that certain people are especially prone to. Now, I do think everybody, every human being is at least to a little degree potentially prone to libido dominante. I think it's just wired into the hardware and software of sort of our neurology and all those chemicals that you get. You know, having power basically activates the more primitive parts of our brain that are always obsessed with status, even if consciously we're not thinking about it. And so when you exercise power over others, and in a way, the more extreme it is, the more arbitrary it is, and the larger the group of people over whom you are exercising power, the more it's going to juice you with all sorts of chemicals like serotonin and dopamine and whatever. And so to some degree, we're all hardwired to be at least a little bit prone to this addiction. But I really do think that in this regard, some animals are definitely more equal than others. Because some people are way more prone to going on power trips and getting addicted to power and are way more prone to being absolutely dominated by libido dominante. In much the same way that certain individuals are more prone to being addicted to certain substances than others, right? That there are some drugs and things that are just inherently addictive, but different individuals vary widely in how prone they are to becoming addicted, how likely they are to becoming addicted to these substances if they try them. And ultimately, it has to do with the individual's psychological makeup. Some people are able to use even the drugs we think of as the most addictive and dangerous, like heroin, and just, you know, use them a few times or just on occasion or whatever and not become junkies. Whereas other people, it's like they try it once and they're, you know, over the rainbow and down the rabbit hole and whatever other metaphor you want to make. I think it's the same way with addiction to power and lust to dominate. In general, I think that what we would think of as good, decent, normal people seem to be not as strongly drawn toward power. And while they might feel some libido dominante thrill in certain situations where they do find themselves wielding some sort of power over others, they will, decent people anyway, will still simultaneously feel kind of uncomfortable, maybe even a little bit gross or dirty while doing it, you know, certainly might even feel a level of guilt for feeling the little thrill of having power. So, you know, people who are mostly good will experience the lust of power as, at best, a guilty pleasure. And as a result, decent people are more likely to wield power as minimally as necessary in order to accomplish whatever it is they're trying to do, and they'll look to set the power down as soon as they possibly can. And when I was thinking about this idea that decent people really are uncomfortable with power, even though they feel the little twinge of libido dominante to some degree. But their discomfort with it 
counterbalances or even overrides that urge, it made me think of a song by Lucero called The War, which is a very interesting song. And the band's singer and songwriter is a guy named Ben Nichols, and he wrote this song about his grandfather's experience in World War II. And it's very much a, a cynical, dark take on World War II, not the usual you know, rose-colored glasses version of that war that you typically get almost everywhere. And it's a great song, especially the live version. But thinking about Libido Dominande and how some people are not as prone to it and will look to avoid wielding power as much as they can, it made me think about the third verse of the song, which goes as follows, quote, Three times I made sergeant. I'm not that kind of man. And pretty much just as quick as I could, I get busted back to private again. Because taking orders never suited me. Giving them out was much worse. I could not stand to get my friends killed. So I took care of myself first. Now I know that don't sound right. Don't think too bad of me. Now it keeps me up at nights. What I could have done differently. End quote. So to me, that's a decent human being. That's someone who sounds like they're already kind of psychologically predisposed to be a libertarian or an anarchist, because this is a person who, on the one hand, doesn't like being told what to do by others, but who also, perhaps even more so, dislikes being the one to order other people around and tell them what to do, and in this instance, to, you know, get people killed. So that's a decent human being who's very uncomfortable with power. Whereas one can imagine plenty of other people who are always gunning for more promotions and more power and more people to order around. And these sorts of people would never voluntarily try to put down the ring of power and actually, like in this case, get themselves demoted. Quite the opposite. The power-hungry, those who are the most prone to libido dominante, they're always seeking more. And of course, that kind of psychological profile accurately describes at least 99% of politicians, whom I genuinely believe are far, far more likely than just the general population to be narcissists and even to be psychopaths or sociopaths and to have other massive personality defects. And even if they are among the relatively mentally healthy and normal when they entered politics, The longer they hold power and the more they gain in power, the more likely it is that it will corrode them over time, and they'll increasingly become worse and worse people. Or they'll leave the the profession altogether. Some decent people will go into a field like politics and quickly get so disgusted by it that they leave. By the way, there's also people that do the same thing who go into a profession like the military or law enforcement. And and typically, the people who are the most likely to be uncomfortable and disillusioned and maybe even quit these sorts of jobs, they're usually the people that went into them with the best of intentions and with the best of motivations, right? So, you know, a guy who goes into politics because he genuinely believes in doing the right thing and standing up for people's rights and all this sort of stuff and making government as fair and honest as possible and blah, 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 blah. That's the type of person that's the most likely to get disillusioned really quick and go do something else. And the same thing, I've personally known people who have gone into the military and into law enforcement with all of the best motivations for wanting to do one of those jobs. And they quickly get very disillusioned 
and are uncomfortable with it and very often will seek to get into another career path as soon as they're able to. Whereas the people who go into a job like politics or the military or law enforcement, because they're prone to libido dominante, because they're attracted to having power and bossing people around and threatening people and all this sort of stuff, those are the people who will not only stay in the career, they're going to be the ones who play the game most effectively and are the best at rising through the ranks of these psychopathic institutions. And so they're more likely to end up in high positions of power in those institutions. So it's a nasty paradox where the people who are the most uncomfortable with wielding power are the people who probably, if you're going to have someone having power, are your your preference, right? If you're a decent person that just wants to live a mostly free life. You know, there's that old saying, I think it was supposedly attributed to Dwight Eisenhower, if I remember right, that anyone who wants to be president of the United States should not be allowed to be president of the United States. So yeah, if you got to be ruled by somebody, it's best to be ruled by somebody who really doesn't want to rule you. But the problem is, those sorts of people are usually not likely to rise into positions, high, high positions within institutions like government and its various organs. They're also, by the way, I think, not as likely to rise even within things like private and quasi-private big corporations. And things like, you know, big church organizations with a lot of hierarchy and bureaucracy and whatever. The people who tend to rise through big dehumanizing institutions always tend to be the worst people. Because that's what those types of institutions and those types of hierarchies select for more than anything else. They don't select for competence usually. They select for, in a Darwinian sense, who is the most ruthless and the most skilled at playing basically political games and gaming the system. So people drawn to a career path of power tend to feel the sexual allure of power even stronger than regular normal people. And since many of them, I honestly believe, don't really have empathy for others, they might be good at faking it, right? They might be very good, especially in front of TV cameras, at faking empathy, at saying, I feel your pain and all this sort of stuff, but they don't really feel it. So they don't feel any of the countervailing discomfort with exercising power and with the negative effects that the exercise of power might have on others. And in general, I believe that the more statist and collectivist a particular politician's ideology is, the stronger their own libido dominante is going to be. So in other words, while good normal people might have a little pygmy marmoset on their back for power, career politicians have fucking King Kong on their back. Now, where I saw libido dominante on display the most over the last, you know, however many dozen to two dozen months, or coming up on two dozen months anyway, is in the governors and the mayors in this country who locked down the hardest and the longest and the most nonsensically and arbitrarily. The ones who really got off on telling people what they could and couldn't do down to the micromanaging level. So, for example, people like Governor Whitmer in Michigan, Governor Cuomo in New York, Governor Newsom in California, as well as a lot of the big city mayors, particularly big cities in blue states, people like Mayor de Blasio of New York City and Mayor Lightfoot of Chicago. You also see libido dominante on huge display with Anthony Fauci himself, who's clearly 
been on a Sith Lord-style libido dominante power trip ever since March of 2020. Now, these people clearly started going off on a major power trip with their arbitrary decree starting in March of 2020, and they seem to have just gotten a real thrill from being the center of everyone's attention and claiming the almost godlike dictatorial power to decide everything from whether or not you get to open your business, to whether or not you get to gather for religious services, to whether or not you can swim in the ocean all by yourself with nobody around at the beach, to whether or not you're allowed to visit your elderly relatives, to whether or not you can go to a restaurant, and if so, under what conditions and where you are and are not allowed to sit. Some of you may even remember back around Thanksgiving time of 2020 that the California governor's office put out guidelines micromanaging your Thanksgiving celebrations. And you could probably Google that up somewhere. I remember looking at it thinking, wow, this is so crazy that I don't even think that the Babylon Bee or the Onion would make some shit like this up. Truth stranger than fiction and all that. I mean, the 2020 California Thanksgiving guidelines, they were saying how often your relatives could go to the bathroom and, you know, whether or not you were allowed to do certain fun activities during Thanksgiving and how the food had to be served. I mean, most dictators in history never claimed that kind of power. And of course, we've seen libido dominante on huge display in the zombie of Joe Biden and his administration for nearly a year now. Now, for sure, Trump had libido dominante, but it was more in terms of talk than action, and I think he's more of a narcissist than he is a psychopath. Because Trump liked to talk big and loud and tough, but in most instances, if you actually look at what he did and didn't do, he actually was usually pretty restrained in exercising his power in a tangible way. So, as in most things, whether good or bad, Trump is much more talk and bluster than he is actual action. So, for example, he left most of the pandemic responses, the actual decisions on what to do and not to do, to state and local authorities, and he really didn't interfere with them. And in addition to that, he didn't do all that much against the gigantic riots that wrecked many cities in the summer of 2020, again, mostly leaving it to state and local authorities. And again, I'm no Trump fan. I never voted for the guy in either of the two elections he ran in, and I have all kinds of criticisms of him. But the fact of the matter is that Trump, you know, had he been, had someone else been in the White House, like, for example, Joe Biden in 2020, I can see most other presidents really grabbing and exercising far more arbitrary executive power than Trump actually did in the face of the pandemic and the riots and all that. So yeah, he was loose with the talk, but he was surprisingly restrained with the actual action. Whereas Biden obviously wants to be like Governor Newsom or Mayor de Blasio on a nationwide basis. He obviously wants to micromanage private citizens and private companies' decisions about things as intimate as personal medical decisions, based on nothing more than his own executive fiat. His words might often sound less libido dominante laced than Trump's words, although not always. But for sure, Biden's actions show far more libido dominante in action than Trump did. 
And something maybe I should have mentioned a little bit earlier in this segment that I will bring up now is that, well, like I said, I think everybody is prone to being seduced by libido dominante, at least to some extent, that the vast majority of the people who choose a career in politics, particularly if they do so from a fairly young age, and particularly if they go into it at a fairly young age and then hang on to it and rise in the hierarchy and are politicians for a very, very long time, right? There's a self-selection bias there that the people who go into politics the youngest and or the people who stay in the career the longest are by definition those who, from the get-go, were the most prone, the most pre-wired to being severely addicted to power in that sexual sense. And obviously, if you look at, you know, Joe Biden becoming a senator when he was, what, in his 30s back in 1952, then he was a senator for 30-some-odd years, and then vice president and now president, like, this is the exact type of person who already, probably when he was in his 20s, was jonesing to satisfy his libido dominante. So, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, but also power attracts the already corrupt. And the occasional good person who goes into the career tends to get corrupted by it sooner or later, right? Even Frodo eventually got a little bit corrupted by the ring. So these are not just old sayings, by the way. There's now a ton of real science, not the science, but real actual science, meaning information obtained by using the scientific method, rather than just trusting the experts, which I guess is the science. So there's a ton of real science that shows that these ideas, that power attracts the worst and that power corrupts, that these are not just little empty cliches. Now, some of the science behind this I've mentioned before, but just for example here, one study that looked at the effects of wielding power over other people, even in fairly minor things and on a very small scale, like you just have a tiny bit of authority over a few other people, right? They have looked at how this affects the physiology of your brain and your nervous system. And they have discovered that having power over others affects the human brain in a very similar way to how cocaine affects the human brain, including things like it gives you a high that includes a very elevated sense of well-being and that that tends to be very addictive because after you exercise power, then you sort of have a bit of withdrawal. And then like the classic addict to a drug like cocaine, you need ever larger increases in your dose in order to feel the same high and avoid the discomfort of withdrawal. This, of course, would explain why most people who go into politics are continually trying to get into ever higher and more powerful offices. It's classic addict behavior. You have to keep up in the dose to get the same effect. Now, it's true that people pursue power for a variety of reasons, including the desire for things like sex and money. But you should never overlook the thrill and the sexual allure of power itself as an end in itself, as a major factor in why people want to rule over others and control them and boss them around, even in cases and situations where there's no tangible benefit to the person wielding the power in terms of like actual economic or material reward. I mean, does it really benefit a governor or a mayor in any tangible material way to tell other people they can't go into a restaurant or they can't get a haircut or they can't visit an elderly relative? Not really. 
doesn't provide the mayor or the governor any additional money or sex or whatever else. But it's the thrill of wielding the power. It's the end in itself for these people. It's the thrill, the rush, the intoxicating, near-orgasmic feeling that they get from bossing other people around and micromanaging them. In fact, if you're making rules and telling people what to do purely arbitrarily, based on nothing more than your own personal whim, I would imagine that makes it even more thrilling than if you're giving orders to other people that are actually at least somewhat logical and reasonable and make sense. I mean, think about prison movies, or prison itself, if you know, you've ever had the misfortune to spend time in one. Imagine a particularly nasty warden. Suppose he issues an order for some prisoners to have the job of taking out the trash. Now, this is a necessary function in a prison that someone has to do, and there's good reasons for doing this. Now imagine the warden issuing an arbitrary order that says that prisoners are going to have to spend the first half of the day digging ditches, and then they're going to have to spend the second half of the day filling those ditches back in. Very Keynesian work plan, right? Which order do you suppose is likely to give this warden the bigger libido dominante thrill? I think we all know the answer. While issuing the first order might give him, you know, a little bump of brain coke, issuing that second order, the much more arbitrary one that makes the prisoners do pointless work that serves no purpose, that's going to be a much bigger rush for the warden. The arbitrariness itself makes issuing the order even more intoxicating than if it was an order to do something that's clearly reasonable and maybe even necessary, like take out the trash. This also explains why especially libido-dominante-prone politicians will be extremely slow to put down any powers they grab in the name of an emergency. And why some of them may even try to amp up their powers and grab more power and control as the emergency is going away. And they'll use any excuse, however nonsensical, however divorced from reality and the evidence, to hang on to more power and maybe even to grab some more. Delta variant, anyone? How about some Omicron? It doesn't matter, in this case, if the evidence clearly shows that these new variants typically are less dangerous than the ones before. The simple fact that it's new, and that we can give it a scary-sounding name that people don't understand, is more than enough for the domination-addicted politician, aided by their mainstream media mouthpieces, of course, to just keep ratcheting up their control. It is classic addict behavior. These people are simply power junkies. Every bit as much as a heroin addict is a junkie for heroin. The only difference is that the average heroin addict is usually a far better human being than the average power junkie, because at least a heroin addict is usually primarily hurting him or herself. And at most, maybe they're harming some of their kind of personal circle of family and friends. Whereas a power junkie, on the other hand, if they rise to a high enough position of political power, has the potential to destroy the lives happiness, prosperity, and sanity of millions and millions. 
So yes, I'm saying that for sure, the heroin addict is a less reprehensible human being than a politician. And while I think that in most cases, the proper attitude towards a drug addict is one of sympathy and compassion, I think that the proper attitude toward a power addict should be one of contempt, fear, and hatred. By the way, one more thing I'll mention here is that I think libido dominante also explains why extremely wealthy people, and here I'm talking about multi-billionaires in 21st century adjusted dollars, that really wealthy people often feel the compulsion to engage in a lot of quote-unquote philanthropy, much of which, if you actually dig into what they're doing, is really about gaining power. So, whether it's the Ford, Rockefeller, and Carnegie Foundations that have been around for over a century, or whether it's the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, or whether it's the activities of George Soros, people who are super wealthy, very often, the wealth no longer gives them the thrill, right? Once you're worth $50 billion, $100 billion, what do those numbers even mean at that point, right? But if you can translate that money into power, into forcing your preferences onto other people one way or another, even if it's sneakily done through the guise of alleged philanthropy. That's the only way for these people to keep getting a thrill. That and maybe visiting Epstein's Island. Okay, so the last concept I want to talk about in this episode is doublethink. This term, of course, as many of you probably already know, is one of the many, many terms that first came into the English language in the mid-20th century thanks to the most well-known and influential dystopia of all, that, of course, being George Orwell's 1984. And since we're living in a fucking dystopia right now in early 21st century America, and throughout much of the world, in fact, in some places, it's even worse. Australia, I'm looking at you. It's very appropriate, then, to be referring to 1984. And honestly, I could probably do 13 concepts and theories just from the book 1984 that we can see on high display around us every day, and especially for the last, you know, year to two years. But for variety's sake, I'll just throw in this one. Seriously, though, you need to read 1984 if you haven't already done so. And if it's been a long time since the last time you read it, you might want to go read it again. And for that matter, same goes for my other two favorite dystopias, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley and This Perfect Day by Ira Levin. Because I think all three of these classic 20th century dystopias have a really alarming amount of relevance to the U.S. and much of the world at the moment. So if you don't know, in 1984, one of the things that the, the party that rules 
over this giant supernation called Oceana is a concept called Newspeak. They figured out that by manipulating people's language, you can control their beliefs and thoughts. And Newspeak is an attempt to reconfigure the English language to make certain types of thoughts simply unthinkable. Because if you don't have words to express certain concepts, then you can't really think about those concepts. And among other things, it's reducing the human vocabulary. And it's introducing new words, sometimes words that are, you know, multiple words squished together. But these new words are always in the service of the party's ideological goals. So, doublethink is a new speak term that means when you simultaneously believe two contradictory things at once, and you have no sense that this is wrong or that there's a problem. You're just completely oblivious and happy to believe two things that are completely in contradiction to each other. Doublethink has become one of the most well-known 1984 Newspeak terms and concepts. And as evidence of this, if you type it in a modern word processor, it's not going to get flagged as a misspelled word. In fact, Doublethink is even in the real dictionary. If you go look at, you know, dictionary.com or something like that. And Doublethink even has its own Wikipedia page. So here's a little bit from the Wikipedia page for Doublethink. Quote, Doublethink is a process of indoctrination whereby the subject is expected to simultaneously accept two mutually contradictory beliefs as correct, often in contravention to one's own memories or sense of reality. George Orwell coined the term doublethink as part of the fictional language Newspeak in his 1949 dystopian novel, 1984. The novel explicitly shows people learning to doublethink and Newspeak due to peer pressure and a desire to quote-unquote fit in or gain status within the party, end quote. Gee, what does that sound like? A huge amount of indoctrination is being done through horizontal enforcement and through carrots in addition to sticks. Back to the Wikipedia entry, quote, to be seen as a loyal party member in the novel for someone to even recognize, let alone mention, any contradiction within the context of the party line is akin to blasphemy and could subject that person to disciplinary action and the instant social disapproval of fellow party members, end quote. Hmm, you have to voice your support for beliefs that inherently don't make sense and that contradict your basic experience and understanding of reality, aside from, you know, the idea that if you're simultaneously believing two things that inherently contradict each other, you're basically giving up entirely on anything even resembling logic. So here's just a little bit from the actual novel 1984 in which the concept is fleshed out a bit more. So George Orwell writes, quote, to know and not to know. To be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies. To hold simultaneously two opinions which canceled out. Knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them. To use logic against logic. To repudiate morality while laying claim to it. To believe that democracy was impossible and that the party was the guardian of democracy to forget whatever it was necessary to forget, then to draw it back into memory again at the moment when it was needed, 
and then promptly to forget it again. And above all, to apply the same process to the process itself. That was the ultimate subtlety. Consciously to induce unconsciousness, and then once again to become unconscious of the act of hypnosis you had just performed. Even to understand the word, doublethink, involved the use of doublethink. End quote. Now, a reasonably intelligent, mostly mentally healthy, non-indoctrinated, rational, critical, independent-thinking person would, of course, be very bothered by the feeling of what psychologists call cognitive dissonance. And such a person would probably feel compelled to try to figure out which, if either, of their two contradictory beliefs is actually true. But to be a good double-thinker, it's all about being well-trained. It's about training yourself to not feel or notice cognitive dissonance, to not have that little twinge of, wait a minute, these two things contradict each other, they can't both be true simultaneously. That's how you prove you're a good person. That's how you prove you're a good citizen and a loyal, obedient member of the party. And in our world, if you're a proper little pawn of what we might call the establishment or the cathedral in the U.S., if you want to be a good, proper, loyal little pawn, then you're going to need a hell of a lot of doublethink to believe all of the contradictory things that you're supposed to say and believe in order to signal your virtue. So here are just a few examples of doublethink that come to my mind from the last, you know, year to two years. The 2016 U.S. presidential election was easily hacked and rigged by Vladimir Putin with a relatively small investment of money and resources. Super easy, barely an inconvenience. Also, the 2020 U.S. presidential election was the most airtight, fraud-free election ever in human history, and if you raise even the slightest doubt about that, you are stupid, crazy, and evil. If you get the COVID vaccine, you can still contract and spread the virus, so you still ought to wear a mask and socially distance, etc. Also, the continued existence and spread of COVID-19 is entirely 100% the fault of the unvaccinated, because if they just got the damn vaccine, then no one would be spreading the virus anymore. It's really, really racist to ask a black person to show a valid ID in order to vote in an election. Also, it's not racist at all to ask a black person to show a COVID vaccination passport in order to go to the store. Left-wing violence is speech. Also, right-wing speech is violence. It's perfectly acceptable and even virtuous to covet the money and wealth of others. Also, it's selfish and evil to want to keep your own money and wealth. Police officers are all a bunch of white supremacist thugs who routinely go around killing black people for kicks. Also, they're the only people in society who should have access to effective modern firearms. Or how about this one? There is no inflation happening. Also, inflation is happening, but it's just because evil private businesses are randomly jacking their prices up all of a sudden, and not because the government and central bank have created insane amounts of new money over the past two years. Because, of course, as every proper NPC knows, drastically increasing the money supply has absolutely no bearing on prices. Also, inflation, which isn't happening, and is the fault of greedy evil private businessmen, 
is actually good for you, the regular person. And you're a white supremacist domestic terrorist if you don't agree with this. So maybe this one is a case of triple think. You're supposed to believe simultaneously. Inflation isn't happening. Also, it is, but you should blame businesses instead of those who actually control the money supply for causing it. Also, it's not even really bad, and you're bad if you think it is. Anyway, I'm sure you and I could both come up with at least a few dozen more of these double-think examples. Because basically, in order to be a loyal pawn of the establishment, of the cathedral, you have to believe a whole bunch of things that contradict the other stuff you have to believe. You have to be willing and able to espouse things now that contradict what you just said 10 seconds ago, while still believing what you said 10 seconds ago, and not noticing or caring that your beliefs cancel each other out, or should, if you were a reasonable, rational person with your own brain, and not just an NPC. So anyway, those are my four first concepts and theories for this miniseries. So I hope you've enjoyed, and uh, look for another four to be coming hopefully in the relatively near future, but I've got a bunch of other stuff in the works too that I'll probably uh, have out before I get the next part of this out. So anyway, I hope you're doing your best to stay rational and sane as best you can in this crazy dark age dystopia in which we appear to be descending. Hopefully it won't keep going in that direction, but you never know, I guess. And I hope, if nothing else, that this episode has given you some stuff to think about, maybe crystallize some things that you've been thinking or feeling, but haven't, you know, quite had a label to put on some of them or whatever. And I hope it at least gives you a little bit of solace to know that not everybody is drinking the Kool-Aid. Not everybody thinks this is fine. So thanks for listening. Stay sane and keep your powder dry. <laughs>